pastoral search committee uh, has met uh, three times uh, in the month of January, uh, once uh, forced into uh, digital visual mode uh, with a number of the team with COVID. Uh, uh, the next time uh, most present with a few on the screen uh, that were able to participate and uh, this week uh, everybody there. Praise God for uh, the freedom of that and uh, one of the things you will find as they start making uh, announcements and reports uh, during February uh, is that uh, I want to warn you, if you've not been through this before, uh, you're going to be happy to hear the reports. Hopefully they will stir you to repair, but sometimes afterwards you're going to go, well, they didn't really say much. Uh, that is the nature of the reality. Uh, and so I would encourage you as you uh, interact with members of the committee over the coming months to realize that, uh, that not only is this a really serious issue for UPC, but uh, as candidates start applying, uh, then uh, it's a serious thing for them. And if they're serving somewhere right now, their congregation, uh, and the old uh, World War II adage, loose lips sink ships, uh, uh, really can apply in the sense that uh, relational turmoil and turmoil that can upset ministries unduly uh, can stir. So just be aware of that, and if you ask them exactly what the committee's doing, they may uh, have to be vague, other than that uh, they are praying earnestly. And I will say to you, as uh, one who's been through this on both sides of the equation a number of times, and then helping churches with interims that... Uh, uh, I think they are appropriately feeling uh, the weight of the task. Uh, I am uh, personally just so much giving thanks for the committee that you all elected. Uh, I can say this, they're not being shy, uh, and that's a good thing because part of what has to happen is for the team to uh, grow together and grow in their understanding uh, as they put together the the grids, uh, and uh, the first thing you'll see sometimes in a month or so, uh, and not much more than a month, Lord willing, uh, uh, is the uh, church profile uh, and pastoral profile being posted uh, that the position is open. I hope that uh, by early March we won't set a date, but we're shooting for a date uh, in that range at the tail end of it. Uh, uh, so be, be praying for that, but uh, they're not going to be able to tell you exactly what uh, they're talking about or thinking about at every stage and, uh, and they won't be able to uh, let candidates names if you uh, have uh, recommended someone uh, uh, the really good thing to do is recommend that to the person that you know out there that you think might be good and ask them to apply uh, because if you ask the committee if so-and-so has applied uh, uh, they're going to say because even the fact that someone is applied can stir difficulty in other ministries. So I just ask you to think soberly on that. One thing I will say uh, that I think is important is that both the committee already, uh, and I can tell you this has been true for the session as well, uh, a lot of thought about what has transpired over the last six plus years that uh, has led to some of the difficulties uh, leading up to this transition uh, while there's a focus on the present and uh, the hopefulness of the future, uh, there's not an ignoring of what do we need to learn about ourselves, uh, what do we need to be changed, uh, what kind of a leadership culture uh, in the session, uh, with the session and the deacons, with the session and deacons and the staff, with the senior pastor and the staff, 
those are part of the discussions with seriousness and prayer uh, as we move towards the future. So pray for that uh, because that's not uh, a simple thing, but it's a really, really important thing. And I'll end my comment with this that uh, I had told you before that when uh, the session started talking with me, uh, uh, in one sense, I tried to talk them out of hiring me. Uh, because I let them know that uh, I don't just fill the gaps. I don't just uh, try to learn to love the congregation. And I don't know how well I'm doing with that, but it's happening in my heart. Uh, I am just thrilled with the people that God has gathered together here in UPC and, uh, and just the really good sense of the work of God uh, and the desire for God to work amongst us that is there. Uh, but, uh, but we need to be able to really speak uh, into one another's lives uh, with honesty and I think that's one thing that the culture has needed to, to grow on. Uh, one illustration, and then we'll pray and dig into the text. Uh, Joe Novenson, um, who has stepped down as senior pastor uh, and doing some outside ministries, but still doing some pastoral work at Lookout Mountain, where he has served uh, many years after my friend Sandy Wilson was pastor there. Uh, Joe said uh, uh, to the session when he arrived, uh, what I have tried to say to sessions, including yours, uh, uh, I give you permission to hunt on my land even when I put up no trespassing signs. In other words, if I try to block off subjects and uh, issues that uh, uh, my fellow leaders have got questions with, they've got a right to uh, uh, really challenge me even if I try to make that off limits. And I think a good team culture where there is trust all the way around and that builds between the staff and the others is uh, certainly one of my prayer targets uh, because I think it's, uh, it's the best kind of healthy leadership. You've got to have leaders, you've got to have structure, but uh, you've got to have that gospel implication character woven throughout and that's what we are uh, working towards. Don't know exactly what that looks like fitting uh, UPC, but we're working towards that. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and your word once again. And we thank you for the incredible gift of your giving it and ask you to open our ears and our hearts. May we and others beyond this place end up becoming more like Jesus because we take this time to look to you and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Our series, The True Grace of God, uh, this morning, new life, a new heart, a new hungers, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. I mentioned a week or so ago, I think, that in the Greek text, uh, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 is all one sentence. Uh, That means there are a lot of verbs that are participles, uh, subordinate clauses, if you like grammar, uh, and and a few main verbs. And the main verbs point to the thrust and all the other phrases uh, support that. And in the verses just before that, I want to review just with the thoughts that are there, so they're in our mind. Uh, uh, Peter cries out saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We start there. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's God's mercy. He caused the birth. The birth is a new birth, born again to a living hope. And it only comes through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And out of that, the goal of that gives us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's a reminder of what uh, sometimes uh, in redemptive uh, historical theology we like to stress that there's an already, God has already done a lot. Uh, Those in Christ have been given a new birth. Uh, The Spirit has been poured out But there's a not yet. Think Romans 8 when it tells us that uh, we don't even receive the fullness of our redemption until the redemption of our bodies. We haven't got that yet. That comes with the second coming. And sometimes we get confused and in a hurry and understandably long for uh, the not yet to be now. And we can get off track. So we need to read the scripture carefully. Because part of our salvation is kept in heaven for us. And right now, God's power, His Spirit, using His Word and using other things that we'll see in this text, we're being guarded in our faith to keep the faith, to set our minds and hearts where they need to be set. And Peter says, in all of this, you rejoice, even though now grieved by various trials, uh, the tested genuineness of your faith, Think about it, Peter says, you've not seen him and yet you love him, you believe in him, and the fruit of trusting and believing in him even now when we don't see him uh, is the salvation of your souls, that not yet part of our salvation. We have the earnest, Paul says in Ephesians, the down payment, uh, but we await the rest when it will all be ours. And this salvation the prophet searched They found out they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you, things indeed into which even angels long to look. And in the middle of that, uh, in this beginning section, there are four main commands 
out of what I've just reviewed. Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for actions, we looked at this last week, being sober-minded, not distracted, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We set our hope fully on the true grace of God that comes in Christ. In verses 14 and 15 last week, we, said, we saw that Peter says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We talked about old inheritance, inheritances and new inheritances. Uh, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And we come in verse 22 this morning to the third of the four, uh, having purified the admonitions, the commands, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, towards, towards or into a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the admonition at the heart of this morning. And we do that, the fourth admonition, chapter 2, verse 2, we carry that out like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, the pure milk they get only from their mother, uh, the milk that they need. And uh, he's not saying we're infants. He's talking to all kinds of believers. But he's saying the way that you search for that which you really need day by day ought to be the way that an infant who's hungry wants to nurse. I mean, everything non-word noises, body language, movements, all of it is now. <laughs> I need this now. That you may grow up into salvation. So I want to just make a couple of applications in review of where we've been and then dig into these, this shorter passage this morning. I want to remind you that the gospel includes not only that Jesus came that he died for our sins and was resurrected, and that we can be forgiven by him. That's crucial. We can never leave those things out. But the gospel that Peter preached, that Paul preached, that the apostles preach, and that the church needs to preach, also includes God's judgment on all our former ignorance and former inheritances. The gospel says those things that lead us to believe we can be righteous without the righteousness of God in Christ through the cross are absolutely condemned. Loved uh, choices of songs, Jack, whether it was all you or, or others, because there was much in what we sang in praise and longing that says just that. Uh, we can only survive, we can only move into the new kingdom with one kind of righteousness, and it doesn't come from the assets we have in our fleshly, earthly inheritance. It only comes in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we need to be sure that we evaluate our experiences, uh, the issues that every new current day and period of history confront us with, that we evaluate and value things only according to the gospel. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Uh, as I was preparing the words for this morning, uh, one of the things that hit me is uh, after you preach... Uh, I don't know about other pastors, but I'm never satisfied, and I'm always thinking about what, what could have been better. And I thought about 
You know, it took several minutes to read you most of the introduction in Rebecca McLaughlin's book uh, that came out last year on secular creeds to give us insight. And sometimes when you do a long illustration like that introduction, uh, uh, people get caught up in it and, for, and forget that the reason you used it was because of the biblical text, that it was ap actually an application of the biblical text. And one of the dangers of thinking of the gospel, of the gospel only in God's love, Christ's death, and our forgiveness is that we think that that's the, the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, and therefore when we talk about current issues, we're not talking about the gospel. Well, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, Your God is Too Small. Uh, I will say to you, uh, if you don't think the gospel includes critiquing you and everybody else, Christians and non-Christians alike, uh, your gospel's too small. Because what Peter's doing is teaching us to critique everything. In her book, uh, The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims, uh, is a core application from 1 Peter 1 uh, that uh, Christ is and what he did in incarnation is the exclamation point on the good news of his plan of redemption. We're commanded, as I said, to set our hope fully on the grace of God, but we're set apart to God to conduct ourselves throughout our time of exile until everything is made new and the fullness of the new Jerusalem is on earth. Uh, to be remembering that we were ransomed not by the most costly things that the rebellious first creation offers. Peter says silver and gold, you name it, the prestige of this world. But we are the ones who know that uh, we're part of a new age that is coming amongst us. And I touched only on one of McLaughlin's five secular claims that she's evaluating in her book, uh, and she addresses it, and if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it because I can't say everything I said last week. The point I want to make for you this morning is that in a humbling yet discerning way for the church, she teaches us on the topic of Black Lives Matter that we must address the issues of our day not culturally, but as the gospel addresses them. He makes clear to us that our best motives without the gospel are easily confused and corruptible without the cross. The world and fleshly power, powers can provide only that kind of thing because they're part of the passions of our former ignorance. God's gospel, word and spirit, critiques and shows us the church's sins and failures as well as the world. And the church is always both in the world and not of it. Uh, if you want to talk more about this sometime, I would love to. Uh, the PCA has strengths and weaknesses. One of the weaknesses which I think we're significantly overcoming is that a portion of the churches that joined the PCA in 1973 joined as much out of cultural conservatism as biblical conservatism. And there's tension in that. You're partly driven by your cultural desires as well as your biblical understandings of the kingdom. And a great irony exists when we uh, try to apply the gospel to racism, and I'm not going to say much before we dive into the rest of the text, but think with me for just a moment. 
Uh, many Christians, including churches during chattel slavery and the Jim Crow years, succumbed not so much to racial hatred as to worldliness. There were many examples of Christians who dearly loved those that were in the slave class during the culture as individuals. But they loved the world, their economic world, their social structure, more than they loved the way that the gospel should impinge on it. And it was their sin of worldliness being tied to the culture and not letting the gospel do what it should have done in the implications of God making one man out of two. And the one man is all Gentiles, every ethnicity, every ethnicity and race, who were all sinful and tempted. And the Jewish race that had the Word of God, that's the only thing that made it different because it was just as sinful and just as broken. But Christ made one new man. And during the Jim Crow years, the church, much of it, succumbed not so much to racial hatred, though certainly there was that in places, as to worldliness. They loved the world, their economic system, the fleshly heritage, being with those just like them, those that agreed with them more than being with those who shared the good news and the ultimate inheritance in Christ. Praise God that God, you know, worked in spite of all of our great sins as a culture. You know, the number one demographic in the United States of America today uh, who are actively Christian is black women. And the black community rates really high. That's a miracle after what happened in American history, that the Spirit of God has been uh, at work. And yet, if you think you can talk about those kinds of issues without applying the gospel and really get somewhere, you haven't looked at all the battles between all the ethnicities. Look at the Asian issue and issues between the Asian Americans and black Americans, even amongst black Americans. Uh, the black community in Miami when I ministered there was deeply upset by the number of black Haitians that were coming in because they were culturally different and they were willing to work for less money. And so jobs that had been in the black community are all of a sudden in the black Haitian community. And that's still not settled because this whole thing is bigger than we think. Every new movement needs to see. And, and this is one of the things that I want to say quickly is that some of the goals that many embrace surrounding Black Lives Matter can be and are being used as a tool to help the church face its worldliness and its weakness. That's been helpful to me. But some involved with Black Lives Matter, both Christians and non, are lost in a new worldliness that believes that this generation is somehow wiser and powerful enough in their own energies not to need the cross and not be humbled by God, who's the only sound basis for equal human rights for everybody. It comes from nobody but Jesus. The best world's philosophers, pagan, agnostic, materialist, and Christian, say there's no foundation for universal human rights than Jesus, even though a lot of them don't like Jesus. But he's the only one that teaches it in an absolute sense. And that was in what I read you last week, so I'm not going to repeat it. So every new movement and claim has to be evaluated, especially by those who find their life in Christ, as to whether or not it's blind and ignorant of the only one who makes each life matter. 
and can keep our old nature zeal from stirring the very divisions and hatreds that our passage this morning condemns. So to get us to this morning text, in summary, the gospel is not simply Jesus came, died, and was resurrected and can forgive you. The gospel includes God's judgment on all our former ignorance that believes we can be righteous without the righteousness of God. And what is the righteousness of God? Who is the righteousness of God? It's Christ himself alone who can tear down all our divisions and lead us to see the unity of sin that without Christ will always create new divisions. Which is why the Christian church is the most diverse racial and for all of our faults, and there are so many. We are, in reality, the most diverse ethnically, racially, religious body the world has ever seen. And it's even more true today. And we get sometimes this narrow vision as if America is the be-all and end of everything. In case you haven't noticed, we're not. And I think God's showing that, us that a little bit more. And it's not that I don't love being American. So two main headings as we quickly walk through these handful of verses. One, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again from an imperishable seed, the Word of God. You really can only come to what God defines as earnestly loving one another from a pure heart if you've been born again by that new life that God gives. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. It's in other words, you've embraced the truth, you've believed the truth, and you're beginning to live in the truth. You've tested out that the things that God has in His truth really are true. They really work. When the church obeys them, the church is an incredible influence for good in the world. And by the way, if you really understand how much people need to be born again, is it surprise that in something as big as a human organization, as, as the church, that you've got a lot of people who aren't following Jesus well? I mean, I mean, if people don't understand why Christians can be as bad as anybody else, they don't understand the doctrine of sin. I mean, go back to the ABCs. If we don't think we are, by God's grace, restrained from being as bad as we could be because of how bad our hearts are apart from the grace of God, we simply don't understand the heart of the gospel, which says we are so broken. Uh, we're not shocked when we see that the church can be weak. It's a question of when it's going to be weak and how we can make ourselves stronger. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, because all flesh is like grass, it's glory like the flower of grass that withers and falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Some thoughts uh, very quickly from wonderful commentator on First Peter, Karen Jobes, are helpful. She says, Christians are to love one another, and I add, and their neighbors, uh, because by obeying the truth, by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they have purified or set apart the words related in the Greek, to the word for holiness, to be holy, from the ways of the world and how they used to treat people. That's what we do when we are purifying by our obedience the way that we're living. And consecration by obedience, Karen Jobes, 
uh, to the truth in verse 22, refers back to the purpose for which Peter's readers were chosen for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a couplet for the new covenant that was established by Christ's blood. Why did Christ die for us? So that we would be a covenant people who live not by love of the world's inheritance and what you can inherit in the world. And what's the old uh, jibe? I've never seen a U-Haul. I've never seen a, um, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It, not much use for that. The Egyptians did a lot of that, but uh, I think we learned really doesn't matter. Christ himself is the living and abiding word who's revealed in the word written. And righteous behavior towards others, this is Karen Jobes, defines love. If you want to know what the scripture says about love, it is righteous behavior towards others. Treating others as they deserve to be treated because as creatures made in the image of God, they deserve equal respect and forbearance that you like to give yourself and see others give you. That's love. It's an active word. It's not an emotion. It is an emotion. We're thankful for the emotional side of it. Uh, but uh, the Christian word for love, agape, uh, agapao in the verb, uh, says when there aren't even emotions, of, uh, emotions and inertia of good feelings, you still treat people, even those that you think aren't as nice as you, with respect. Because that's what the gospel does. It's how we treat others. The main argument in these verses is that our new life is an imperishable one from an imperishable seed. Jesus' body sown in the ground for us, but rising, giving new life to all of his children. And Peter is actually uh, referencing in that language uh, about the grass and its withering, Isaiah 40. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. Every valley shall be filled up uh, so God can enter back into Israel. And this is the time of Israel's exile as a nation. And God's going to deliver them. Later in the passage, a voice uh, of one saying, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. And a few verses later in Isaiah 40, 11, the wonderful words, he will tend his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs with his arm and comfort those that are with young. Peter applies Isaiah 40's words regarding Israel's exile to his readers' exile. And that in turn has ties to John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, preparing your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the central contrast here is between what is temporary, what is transitional, and what lasts forever. It's between the kind of life that is transitional and temporary. And if you're not in Christ, that's the only kind of life you have. If I don't live my life in the new life of Christ, uh, I'm in the land of the dying, and that's the only life I've got. If we have the new birth, we are in the land of the dying, but we're on our way to the land of the living, the new earth. When everything, so it's all about what lasts. 
It's all about the God, Isaiah 40, 12, who, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off heavens with a span. Isaiah 40, 22, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Second main point. New life in Christ deliberately replaces hunger for the fruit of the flesh with hunger for the goodness of God himself. That's why these first three verses in chapter 2 fit with the latter part of chapter 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord of good, Lord is good. A key connection for these three verses is the tie between newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk, with to be born again back in chapter 1 verse 3. What sustains this new life, not the old one we know so well, our fleshly existence, that's what the, the spiritual milk is about. What sustains the new life? We're not to feed the old nature with its malice, its deceit, its hypocrisy, its envy, its slander. We're to feed that which was, is without hypocrisy, that brings love of the brethren, which spills over to our neighbors. And the words putting off or casting away the malice and the other things are in the New Testament a, a commonplace way of referring to shedding conduct that doesn't fit our new life. That's why the contrast. Don't feed your malice. Don't feed your envy. You can choose to do that, can't you? I mean, there have been a lot of studies about salary as men and women climb the corporate ladder and get the big salaries. Uh, and, and the big answer to the big question is how much is enough? And the answer is a little bit more. In other words, I've got to have a little more. If my honor is in the inheritance of this world, if that's what I glory in, then a little bit more you know, is, is always what I've got to have. And then I'm going to envy those that have it if I feed that, because I'm feeding the wrong desires. It's not wrong to want to work hard. That's a God-given desire. It's not hard. It's not wrong to want to be useful. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to uh, want to create a business and employ people and enable them uh, to make money and uh, live in a way that they can feed. I mean, those are incredibly godly, biblical ways of looking at business. Business is not ungodly. I mean, every level. Uh, you know, I'm not always this alert, but I thanked uh, our maid as we were leaving the hotel uh, this morning uh, for just her hard work and keeping everything so clean. I mean, have you ever thought about what it would be like if they didn't clean? Do you know what can grow in a room if you let it alone for a few months or a few years? We only really see that usually in the movies, but, but that's a really important task. So anybody who does that task is doing something really important. We need to tell them. I, I've had people get shocked look on their face when I'm in an airport and, and thank the custodian who's cleaning the place for the crucial service that, that he's giving. I bet it's been a week or two since he was told he 
is doing a crucial service that is really appreciated. Work is a good thing, but not if it leads towards evaluation by the world's standards. And these words are community-destroying, slander, malice, envy, hypocrisy, fellowship-destroying, trust-destroying, relational actions, which is why Peter says about those of us who are in leadership, uh, we're to be the servants of all. We have more responsibility to be the servants. We have tough decisions to make because of leadership, but we're the servants of all. That's a burden as well as a privilege and a responsibility. So we're to put it all off. And like newborn babies, long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. John Calvin's very helpful here. I printed this on your outline. Now that he, Peter, has taught that the faithful are regenerated by the word of God, he exhorts them to lead a life corresponding with their birth. Infancy is here set by Peter over against the old age of the flesh, which leads to corruption. And by the word milk, he includes all the feelings of spiritual life. He then compares the vices in which the old age of the flesh indulges to strong food, and milk is called the way of living which is suitable to innocent nature and simple infancy. Uh, simple infancy. While many think the pure spiritual milk here in Peter is, so, is focused on the Word of God specifically because that's in the in verses before, I think many of our commentators, and I myself at time, have missed the clear focus of the text. The Greek word for spiritual here in verse 2 of chapter 2 uh, is a word some of you may have heard from Romans 12. It's, it's a word that in the Greek put over into English is logikos. And it relates to logos, and it relates to logic, which is why uh, Romans chapter 12, 1, is sometimes translated uh, when we are to commit our bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, it's a word that, instead of saying spiritual worship in some translations, says, which is your logical worship. It's your reasonable worship, because it what, it's what fits reality. In other words, if you've been made into a new being and you've got a body, now you dedicate your body in a way that is logical and reasonable and spiritual towards what you hunger for. You don't hunger with the stuff that feeds for the stuff that feeds your envy. And thus we are to crave and long for all truth and all behavior that is in keeping with our new life in Christ. It's tied to Paul's obedience of faith in uh, Romans 1 and 16, that he's preaching the obedience that comes from faith. And Peter's covenant obedience, chapter 1, verse 2, to Jesus Christ, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth and into his serious brotherly love, sincere brotherly love. Peter's final phrase, uh, and I need to wrap this up, in chapter 2, verse 3, tells us that what I just said to you about the word spiritual milk is on track. How does he end all this? He says, if you have tasted indeed that the Lord is good. Anybody know uh, where in Scripture he's quoting? Psalm 33. I didn't expect you to shout out the answer. Uh, but I wanted to make you pay attention to that. I encourage you to. Because as we get into future chapters in First Peter we'll see that Psalm 33 is really on Peter's mind. And in Psalm 33, verse 8, 
the psalmist cries out, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Jack, thanks for the words in the songs. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So when we know we've been born again and we live according to a new inheritance, and when the devil tries to uh, get you to look down the row and Sunday morning church, like uh, C.S. Lewis talks about in uh, his screw tape letters, and says, you know, that lady doesn't have any taste in hats. Look at that stupid coat and that stupid dress that she has. Uh, to get you to think about people in a way that is according to worldly standards. Instead, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, is <laughs> it's incredible. Look at how different we are. And all drawn into to the love of Christ. Look at the richnesses, the richness of backgrounds that we bring. One of the things I've loved about uh, ministering in East Africa a little bit over the uh, last 10, 15 years is, is I just get blown away. You know, I got a lot of years of graduate education. Uh, I met this brother, and I was tempted to think, you know, he lives in this little village that doesn't even have running water. Uh, and, uh, and as I got to know him, God just shamed me. I only went to fourth grade. I forget now whether it was eight or ten or twelve languages that he speaks. French, English, four or five tribal languages, you know, in Uganda, Swahili. I mean, it just goes, and I'm going like, the more I was around him, I'm going like, and, and the way he ministered, those are God's standards. How much he drunk in spiritual milk to let him minister to all the different tribal groups that he'd learned to love. It's not his education that's wonderful. It's why he wanted that informal education. What he wanted to use it for. J. Ramsey Michaels, and we're done with this uh, commentator. I, lo I love these words. He says, salvation is seen here in Peter, not as a last-minute rescue operation, you know, that comes in from the outside and snatches it, though it all comes from the outside as the Holy Spirit snatches it. But salvation by Peter in this paragraph is seen not only as that beginning, but, quote, as the fitting consummation of a process already at work in and among Christian believers. In other words, our salvation is seen by us when we're biblical. It's all of grace. It's all God's doing, but it includes out of the grace our hungering for and leaning into uh, the obedience that comes from faith. Like I said last week, quoting Luther, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. By this, they'll know that you're Christians. By the, your unity, they'll know that you belong to me, John 17. Uh, these are all things that are shown outwardly. Michaels finishes, uh, those who live like hell can't expect to alive in, arrive in heaven. And he's not saying that we get into heaven by our obedience. But he's saying what Paul and Peter and so many others have said that uh, 
by degree, we will become different in the way we love if we hang out with Jesus. And it's going to be different at different times and different seasons, and at times we're going to struggle. But if we have found our life in Jesus, we're going to want to love our neighbors. And we're going to be open to admonition, uh, to think beyond our own cultural borders and groups. And how thankful I am that there's much of that that we hear about in the prayer requests every week from the elders, those among you that are involved in ministries that reach out. Uh, with one of the elders this week who's had, and I just was amazed, won't go into it, opportunities in the last two weeks to, to share the gospel because of quiet steps of, of laying out uh, just a taste and people coming to him to want to know more. And I'm sure that's true of many of you. May it be true of all of us. It's little steps. It's looking at people with a new heart. And the new heart only comes from Jesus. Amen. Jack, team, come and lead us. Let's stand together and respond. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting